Well, it's good to be back, and I bring you greetings from the southern part of Brazil. Uh, I want you to know that each and every one of you are loved by the brethren down there. They may not know you by name. They might not recognize you by sight, uh, but they know you by your deeds. And uh, they appreciate all the support that you gave, that we gave to Mark and Jew for the time that, that they were down there and for the support that you give to the trips that go down there every two years. Uh, even if they don't know you, they feel like they do. And I hope that you feel like you know them as well. They're a wonderful group of people and they, uh, they truly do love uh, their brethren here uh, in Dangerfield. And so I bring you greetings from those churches. I also want to say thank you to uh, those who filled in in various areas Why both me and Mark were gone, to Joe Terrell and, and uh, John Seeley uh, for filling in in the pulpit, and Zane for doing Bible classes and Devo, things like that. I'm not going to say I appreciate Zane for filling in preaching because those of you that were here last Sunday night, you've already been hitting me up. Wanting to know why Zane can get done and say everything he needs to say in 15 or 20 minutes. And it takes me 30 or more. So, you know, deal with it. You know, that's, that's the best I can do. But I appreciate Zane for, uh, for doing that and, and for the others as well. We have been in the book of Hebrews for quite some time. This is actually the 10th lesson out of the book of Hebrews. And, and we started off understanding that it was a letter of encouragement to a group of believers, many of whom were on the verge of giving up for various reasons. Some of them probably were just tired. Some of them probably were discouraged because of persecutions that were going on in their lives. Some of them were probably discouraged because things weren't turning out the way that they thought they were turned out. Some of them were discouraged because they just weren't familiar this was all kind of new to them. And, and most of them had come out of Judaism and, and they liked the tradition that they came out of. They liked the sacrifices and they liked the high priests and they liked all those things because those were familiar to them. And it was easy to just kind of follow the rules and do those kinds of things. And, and so they were on the verge of giving up and going back to Judaism. But the writer comes along and he offers a book of encouragement, a letter of encouragement, encouraging these people to not give up. Now, many of, there may be some in here this morning who are on the verge of giving up for all kinds of different reasons. I don't know what they might be. But my, my plea to you is the same plea that the writer has to his readers. Don't give up. Don't give up because what we have is so much better than anybody or anything else could offer us. He talks about the fact that Jesus is superior or better or greater. He also gives us warnings throughout the letter. He says, don't do this or, or these things will happen if we do these things. And then he encourages us to encourage one another, which brings us to our theme verses, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, that we have all memorized. And we can quote to one another. I know we can, but I won't make you do that. But we know that it says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the first. 
If we hold firmly to the end, encourage one another daily. And that was the writer's goal for his readers. And that is our goal for one another. Then we take every opportunity we have to encourage each other. But we have looked at the fact that Jesus' words are greater. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. We've looked at the fact that the rest that Jesus promised is greater than the the Sabbath rest that the Israelites got in the Old Testament. And we looked at the fact that Jesus is the great high priest because he became like us. Now, those of you who are on Facebook or Instagram, as the case may be, will have noticed that a week ago today, my daughter posted from Brazil a post that said, on this day, whatever the date was, at such and such time, my father from the pulpit admitted that I was right and he was wrong. And some of you wanted to know what that was in reference to. Well, I'm going to explain what that was in reference to. She had bought, early on in the trip, she had bought these two hats. They were dissimilar. They were unalike. But she said they were the same. But they were different in color. And they didn't look anything alike to me. But she said they were the same. And that brought then a discussion of a pet peeve that I have. You may be shocked to know that I have a pet peeve. I think I just have one. But my pet peeve is when people begin a sentence or start a sentence and they say, two things are exactly alike except. No, no. You cannot say two things are exactly alike except. You can say they're similar. You can even say they're alike. But you cannot say they are exactly alike except. And Michelle argued with me the whole trip about that fact. And so Saturday afternoon, Mark informs me that I'm going to preach Sunday morning. Did not know that. Was unaware of that. I had only brought one sermon with me, my mistake. And I had used it the previous Sunday. And so I'm up late Saturday night. And I'm thinking, hmm, wonder what I'm going to preach from. What do you think? Hebrews? Yeah, Hebrews. And so I went over there where we had been at some time where it said that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. And I use that as our text. And I'm going through that and through chapter 2 and chapter 4 where it talks about that he became flesh and blood like his brothers and everything else. And it dawned on me at 2 o'clock in the morning. That the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus became exactly like us, except. He became exactly like us in all ways, except he did not sin. And so I admitted that Sunday morning in front of everybody. That only because the Bible said so (laughs) was my daughter right and I was wrong. But that's what he says. 
And therefore he became our great high priest. He gave us some warnings we've looked at to pay attention and warnings against drifting, warning against hardening our hearts through unbelief and disobedience. And this morning, the writer encourages us by reminding us of the power of God's word. In Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13, he writes, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Tonight, this morning, I want us to look at the words and phrases that the writer uses to describe God's word. And the first one he uses is the word of God is living. The word of God is alive. The word of God is not dead. VBS, one of my favorite songs to lead in VBS is God's not dead. No, he is alive. You know, I love that song. Well, not only is God not dead, but God's word is not dead. There are many in the world who believe that the Bible is a dead book written thousands of years ago with no relevance to our lives here and now today. Now I'm going to be blunt, more blunter, more blunter, no more, just blunter, right? I don't know. Anyway, more blunt, maybe than normal. People who say that, that the Bible is dead, that the Bible has no relevance, are ignorant. They have not read God's word. They have not really looked into what the Bible says. Because you cannot read the word of God. And you cannot do that and not find relevance in our lives today. They're unfamiliar with what the Bible actually says. This book, God's word, is relevant to every aspect of our lives. Love one another. No relevance to that in our world and in our society today. Do unto others as you would have others do to you. No relevance in our world. Doesn't apply to anything that's going on in our society or the world at large. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not relevant. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. No relevance in our world today. God's word is absolutely relevant in our world. If all the Bible was. If all the Bible was. Was a self-help. How to get along with people book. If that's all it was. Nothing more than that. It would be an amazing book. 
It would be amazing literature. If all it was, was how to get along with people and survive in the world. If that's all it was, it would be amazing. But you and I know that it is much, much more than that. And there are people out there in the world who view the Bible like that. Well, you know, it's a good book. It has a lot of uh, good uh, uh, help in it, you know, ideas or or suggestions or or whatever. You know, kind of like Confucius or kind of like Aesop, you know, and his fables or kind of like, you know, whoever. But no, it's, it's much more than that. Remember that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to both the Jews and the Greeks. For everybody, it's the power of God for salvation. It is alive. It also teaches us God's will for our lives and provides the means and hope for salvation and eternal life. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, we know as well. All scripture is God breathed. NIV says, King James and other translations will say, all scripture is inspired by God. Yeah. That word inspired literally means God breathed. That's why the NIV translated it that way. The Greek word, and you know I don't know a whole lot about Greek, but I know a little bit. That Greek word is theonutos. Theos, meaning God, theology, the study of God, okay? And then nutos. And you say, what in the word is nutos? Well, I'll give you a hint. It starts with the P-N. Oh, What weird word do we have in English that starts with P-N? Pneumonia has to do with the breath, doesn't it? Theonumatos. God breathed. All scripture is as if God breathed the words onto the page. You know, in and of itself, This is nothing but ink and paper, right? Ink and paper. That's all it is. Just like my dictionary is ink and paper. We're getting less and less ink and paper, but I'm an ink and paper kind of guy. Encyclopedias, ink and paper. They don't even know what that is. But, you know, okay. Wikipedia before Wikipedia. It's just ink and paper. But what it represents is God's breathed words on the page. God breathed the words. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly, completely Totally equipped, totally equipped for every good work. How many of you, when you were in school, teachers would give a test over stuff you didn't even know you were supposed to study? Oh, man, hated that. God says, I'm giving you everything you need for godliness, 
for good works. It's all right here. You're totally equipped. You have everything right at your fingertips. We don't like guys, you know, maybe women too, you know, doing stuff, you know. I hate when I have to put something together and have to traipse out to the garage 15 times to get the right tool. Hush, I know if I'd have read the instructions ahead of time, I'd have known what tools I needed. But that's beside the point. Or not having the tool at all that you need. God says, "Uh uh-uh. I've given you everything. I have totally, absolutely, thoroughly equipped you for everything you need through my word. It's not just words to people of ages past, but it is words to you and me today and words for our ancestors in centuries to come. God's word is alive. Secondly, he says, God's word is active. Well, that's similar to being alive. God's word is active either, even today. Of course, what action it takes in our lives really depends on our reaction to it. And next week, we're going to kind of talk about what our possible reactions are to, to God's word. But, but uh, we understand, you know, and we know from James, James warns us, do not be hearers only. Do what it says. And Jesus says, the man who builds his house on the solid foundation, the man who builds his house on the rock, is the one who hears these words of mine and does what it says or puts them into practice. We can hear the word of God all we want to. I believe it's still true, I'm almost positive, that the Bible is still the number one best-selling book in all the world throughout all of history. But it doesn't look like a lot of people are putting it into practice. A lot of people may have one. A lot of people may read one. But from what I see in the world around it, not a lot of people are putting it into practice. We need to make sure that we don't fall into that category. That we put into practice God's word. But if we read it, and if we study it, if we meditate on it, if we believe it, and if we obey it, it changes our minds, it changes our lives, it changes our destiny. It lives within us and manifests itself by our lives being changed and how we treat other people and how we, how we speak to other people and, and, and what our, our values in our lives are changed because of God's word being active in our lives. Thirdly, he says that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates to a certain extent. A double-edged sword. Is a sword is a weapon of battle. A double-edged sword is sharp on both sides. So that in close hand-to-hand combat, as it were, you're cutting going and coming. Whether you're swinging this way or that way, you're cutting. It was meant to be a weapon of battle. A weapon of war. Paul described the word of God as the sword of the spirit. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6 where he lists the armor of God. 
And from this, I kind of get the idea that the word of God in comparing it to a double-edged sword has two purposes. One is like the surgeon's scalpel. Skilled and precise. And the word can be used to cut away the infected, cancerous, sinful part of our lives. In the hand of God, in the hand of, of somebody who, who rightly discerns God's word. That sharp instrument can be used to, to precisely cut away that dead and infected tissue. And it can do all the good. And like the surgeon, it may be painful. But the result is a life free from the infection of sin. It says that it, it penetrates or it cuts. It pierces. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he comes and he tells them essentially that they had crucified the Son of God. And he comes to verse 36 of chapter 2 and he says, Let all of Israel be assured of this. This same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. In verse 37 it says, And when the people heard Peter's words, they were cut to the heart. The word of God had penetrated into them. The word of God had cut away and helped them to realize what they had done. We should allow the word of God to penetrate every aspect of our lives. But the word of God has another purpose as well, he says. It will be used to judge us. In the end. And like the sword of battle. It, it inflicts pain. And death. On those who deny its power. And those who deny. Its author. It judges. Even beyond actions. I love that where it says. It, it penetrates. And it cuts between. Soul and spirit. Joint and marrow. And I think what the writer is trying to get us to understand is, is soul and spirit, those are almost exactly the same thing. But the sword, the word of God can actually discern the difference between the soul and the spirit. Joint and marrow, bone and marrow, you know, that, that, it's all kind of wrapped up in there. Now, we, we in our day, we've learned how we can extract marrow from the bone and use it in bone, marrow transplants and things like that. But in those days, bone and marrow were, you know, synonymous. It says, but the word of God can even separate bone and marrow. And then he says, the word of God can even judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow. And we can judge actions, can't we? I mean, I do something wrong, you can judge that. But you can't really judge my thoughts. You can't really judge my intentions. You can't really judge what's going on in my heart. But the word of God can and does. The word of God can judge those things and go beyond 
actions. It penetrates even to our thoughts and intentions. And fourthly, the thing that it does is the word of God uncovers. It says that there in, in, in verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word there for uncovers and lays bare is essentially the word naked. There will be a time when we will be exposed. We will be naked spiritually. It will all be laid bare before God. Not as if he doesn't already know, because he already knows. But it's going to be laid wide open. Now, I don't know how many of you watch the criminal shows, you know, like NCIS or CSI or, you know, those other shows, Law and Order, you know, where they perform autopsies. What do they do when they perform an autopsy? They cut you open and they lay it all bare so that they can see and delve into and, and, and look into what the cause of death was because how many times on those show is what seems to be the cause of death isn't really the cause of death, right? Otherwise, the show would end in 15 minutes instead of an hour. Same is true. What, what we see from one another on the outside may not be what's going on on the inside. We may be able to fool each other. I may even be able to fool myself. But there's going to come a time. When the word of God as a judge lays us bare, opens us up and reveals all on the inside and will be judged by what we see. Nothing will be hidden and an account will be given. If we've allowed the word of God to purge our lives of sin and disobedience and we have nothing to hide. Gospel. Just cut away and remove sin from our lives. However, if we continue to live in deceit and sin and disobedience, it will be uncovered. Now, the way we did this, I don't want us to lose the fact. This is not a message of discouragement, but of encouragement. Because we are going to let God's word work on our lives. We are going to allow it to be alive and active in our lives. We are going to allow it to change our lives. To do the things in our lives that God wants us to do. And and we're going to allow the word of God to encourage us. We're going to allow the word of God to strengthen us. And we're going to live out our lives so that when everything is laid bare. We got nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. And we don't have to worry about the account that we have to give. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org.
dot org. That's D F I E L D C O C dot O R G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. Seven five six three eight. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at nine thirty a.m. for Bible class and ten thirty a.m. for worship service. Sunday evening at six p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at six thirty p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.